as we continue this morning. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer, because we must. Let's pray. God, you alone are God. There is no other. You have revealed yourself as a God of perfection, wisdom, knowledge, justice, mercy, faithfulness, loving kindness. We trust in your perfect plan. We trust in your Son who became man and gave himself up for our sin and rose again so that in him we might be your righteous people. We thank you for your spirit given to indwell us. Lord, we gather together in your name this morning with many different situations occurring in our lives. And whatever it is that we're dealing with, we may be able to hide it from one another. But there is nothing hidden from your sight. So if what we need is repentance, then cause us to repentance. If what we need is comfort God, then grant us comfort from your word by the presence of your spirit. If what we need is courage, then grant us courage. Thank you that you are sufficient for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 7. Last week in our study of the second half of Acts 6, we discussed how Stephen became Stephen. How did the humble helper for charity distribution become a target of the religious establishment and then become the first martyred follower of Jesus? Upon examination, it becomes clear that Luke's presentation of Stephen is that he was a pivotal man for a pivotal moment, following in the footsteps of Jesus. And as he did so, Stephen becomes proof that Jesus continues to work through subsequent generations of believers, and that the spirit he has given us is able to make us faithful to our Lord. In this section of Acts, then, Stephen becomes to us a model in ministry, as we saw last time, and he becomes a model messenger, which we'll look at for a couple of weeks, including this morning, and he becomes a model even in his martyrdom. Today, we begin tackling the section, the second section concerning Stephen, emphasizing his role as a messenger and the message itself. And we'll just get as far as we can with the time that we have. Uh, 
Several people have asked me how I'm going to try to cover a pericope that is 53 verses long, and I will not. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll just go as far as we can and continue it next week. In fact, I'm going to take some time right now with an introduction to this uh, message by Stephen, this speech by Stephen, and talk about, again, Stephen being a model messenger. Look just at verses 1 and 2a of chapter 7. And the high priest said, are these things so? We'll review here in just a second so you can remember what it, it was that they're asking him about. And if you weren't here with us, we'll review for you. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Right away in our review, we're reminded that Stephen models gospel witness under duress with calm assurance in God. Stephen has been falsely accused by his fellow Hellenists, we learned in chapter 6, verse 13, who couldn't withstand the spiritual wisdom with which he debated them concerning fulfillment and salvation in Jesus Christ, verse 10. They couldn't withstand the wisdom that he spoke in the Spirit. They have, so they have taken what Stephen said and twisted it to make it sound like he is blaspheming God by attacking the temple because he had likely quoted Jesus and then begun explaining what Jesus taught. Maybe you'll recall Jesus predicted that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed back in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, a prophecy which we know came true in AD 70, which if we're correct, is post the time that these things are being written and distributed first. So it has not yet happened, but something that Jesus already predicted. So Stephen may have been teaching that the physical temple could not last, but that in the new covenant, God was now present with and in his people by the Holy Spirit, wherever they might be or go. Do you remember Jesus teaching the Samaritan woman at the well that you worship on this mountain in Samaria, and the Jews worship on their mountain in Zion. But the, the time is coming when people will not worship here or there, but they will worship me in spirit and in truth. That time has come. Jesus had also used the temple as a metaphor for his own death and resurrection. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, John 2, 19. Jesus said that during the first time that he cleared the temple courts, and they said, by what sign do you do these things? And he essentially said, the sign that I will give you is that you will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Stephen may have been teaching that much of what the temple stood for was no longer necessary, namely the offering of sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus' death and resurrection was the complete and perfect sacrifice. To devout Jews, though, this would mean that he was also attacking the law, the customs that Moses delivered to us, verses 13 and 14, that they accused him of doing. Even with these witnesses testifying against him before the Sanhedrin, the highest court in the land, Stephen has a calm assurance in God, verse 15. 
because he is near to God. He knows that he is innocent before God, and he is authorized and empowered by God. Now Stephen is asked to answer these accusations. Are these things so? Even before we get into his response, we might reflect once more on what it takes to be prepared for gospel witness. To do so, let's look at two New Testament references that balance or nuance how we are to handle preparation for defense of the gospel. How can we be ready as Stephen seems to have been ready? Because Stephen models preparation without anxious perspiration. I'll explain that. I know it's just my little play on words, but Stephen models preparation without the anxiety of what is to come. Here are the two verses I'd like to show you. First in Luke 21, this is in this context of Jesus is describing for his disciples the destruction of the temple and the and then end days type tribulation and he says to them, "But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you." delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Sound familiar? Just as others were before him and would be after him, Stephen is literally a fulfillment of this promise. I will give you a mouth and a wisdom, and none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict it. But what did Jesus mean by not meditating beforehand how to answer? Peter, who surely would have understood the intent of Jesus' statement, qualifies this this recommendation for us from Jesus, and Peter does so again in the context of mistreatment because we belong to and serve Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Even if they aren't put to shame in this life, they are put to shame in the court where it counts most, in the courts of heaven. That was Peter balances what Jesus taught, we see ignorance isn't a virtue. Stephen not only alludes to Scripture, but he will quote it from memory time and time again in this speech. But I think the crux of the matter is that if you are prepared with clarity on how the gospel or how the Scripture presents the gospel, if you're prepared with clarity on how the Scripture presents the gospel, quote, the reason for the hope that is in you, and if you are honoring Christ the Lord as holy, then you're ready. Do you understand the gospel as it is presented clearly in the scriptures, 
And then secondly, are you honoring Christ as holy? Are you walking in the Spirit? That's the only way to be ready. The Holy Spirit in us will do much more than we could ever do. So we have no need to fret and overanalyze what we would do in a situation like Stephen's. We should focus our attention on honoring Christ in our hearts and on clarity of mind concerning the hope of the gospel. So here we have Stephen in one of these exact situations Jesus predicted. And we already know Stephen is full of faith and full of the Spirit, chapter 6, verse 5, and therefore he is full of grace and power, verse 8, and he is full of wisdom from that same Spirit, verse 10. And in this context, another example Stephen sets for us is how to approach our listeners. Before we get too far into Stephen's speech, which is the longest discourse in all of Acts, I want us to take note of Stephen's approach right here at the outset. It's a model of what we just read from Peter in the end of 1 Peter 3.15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Stephen models concern and respect for his audience, as well as connecting with and understanding them. Stephen begins, brothers and fathers, hear me. With this simple opening, Stephen is respectful of his audience, brothers and fathers, and he shows care and concern toward his audience. He doesn't go all John the Baptist on them at the beginning and call them a brood of vipers. Such circumstances ought to be extremely rare. Stephen strikes a note of respect. We do well to remember that we are never speaking truth in a vacuum. We are speaking to people who matter to God, so they should matter to us. Even when what we must say is confrontational, we must be clear, especially in our own hearts, that we do so out of love for them and out of faithfulness to God not out of any animosity or vindictiveness. Stephen might have been tempted to answer, I'll show you. But he begins, brothers and fathers, hear me. His plea is not that they would find him innocent of the twisted and exaggerated charges against him. That's not how he emphasizes his response. His plea is that they would listen carefully to the message what he is about to say will not be so much about defending himself as much as being clear about how his audience should view themselves in light of their history, a history that leads to Jesus. His desire is that they should repent of their rejection of God and respond to Jesus in faith. And we'll discover that it seems that every commentary I read on this speech we believe that Stephen's speech gets cut short by their anger before he's able to get to the real call of, of repentance and faith. They're so angered at the clarity of their rejection of the Messiah, they stone him. But it's clear at the beginning, that's not Stephen's desire. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The second feature of Stephen's approach demonstrates that he knows his audience, and therefore he connects with his audience. 
while you won't change the message for your audience, you adapt your approach based on the audience and their situation, even though the message is the same. The message is that we're presenting the God of glory, the God of gracious choosing. We're presenting the reality of a rebellious and rejecting mankind. We're presenting God himself, Jesus being the climactic redeemer to whom you must respond. And in early Acts, we see that such a response to Jesus yields a life of following him and a fruitful ministry in the spirit. The message doesn't change, but perhaps the way that we handle our audience does. So as we shall see, Stephen chooses historical review to show his present audience where they themselves actually stand before God. The issue is not about me, Stephen is saying, but about where you are with relationship to the God whom you call your father. Stephen is drawing on common connection and understanding with his audience, while at the same time using all that history to build an argument that begins subtly, but grows and grows until it crescendos in the ears of his beloved fellow Israelites. If you refuse to respond to what God has communicated through Jesus, you prove yourselves to be the climactic example of all those of our people who came before us, who refuse to listen to God and instead persecute his prophets, and who have the law but do not keep it, and who have the temple but are trying to confine God to that temple. And as I'm mentioning this historical review, I've added sort of this parenthesis in this introductory part for you. Maybe because it's dear to my own heart, I grew up as a missionary kid my parents served among the Yanomamu tribe in the Amazon rainforest of northern Venezuela or southern Venezuela and northern Brazil. So this is dear to my heart. Stephen's message models that the Old Testament biblical storyline matters for a listener's understanding of God and ourselves and therefore the gospel. The story of God, of course, beginning with creation. But then the, where, where Stephen picks up, the story of God choosing a people for his own possession, through whom he would do what he has done for all of us. This people, Israel, it helps us understand God's dealings with mankind. And so even when we go into a setting where there's no written language, there's no Bible in their language, and as soon as we understand the culture and the language well enough to teach, where do we go? Straight to Jesus? No, they won't understand that. We go back to who is God? The God of glory who created all things for himself. The God of grace who made us to worship him and to love him. But we rejected him and wanted to be gods ourselves, and so on. We carry forward with the biblical storyline 
to understand God in ourselves. So Stephen will trace through some key figures and features of Old Testament history with God. As we get into this discourse, you might start asking yourself, especially if you're familiar with these Old Testament characters, and rightly presume that Stephen's audience is definitely as familiar with it, probably more familiar with it than we are, you might start asking yourself, why doesn't Stephen cut to the chase? Is Stephen stalling? Is he avoiding the issues they raised? You might also ask yourself, why does Luke choose to record this whole thing or as as much of it as he does in such detail? Even previous sermons by Peter, I I had told you, I imagine that, that Luke summarized. I don't think Luke summarizes very much of this speech. I think Luke gives it to us as it was. Why does he do that? In his historical reviews, Stephen certainly doesn't try to be exhaustive, even with regard to the primary figures and features that he addresses. And so, as we go through this long discourse, which is going to take us more than one week, we need to do at least two things. We need to try not to lose sight of the forest as we journey through the trees. And secondly, we need to look for connections to the accusations that were raised against Stephen because Stephen kind of turns the tables on them using these very accusations. So we need to look for connections to that and look for connections to the climax of his speech where he turns the tables entirely. We're in Acts chapter 7, just in verse 2, and this will go all the way to verses 51 to 53. There's a turning point in Stephen's rhetoric at verse 35. Look at verse 35 in your Bibles, where he, he'll, he'll go through Abraham and Joseph, and he'll come to the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and focus on Moses. And it's in this section where he's talking about Moses, where he begins to get more clearly to his point, this Moses whom they rejected is an important turning point. And now look at verses 51 to 53. By the way, as we start getting into his discourse, you're not gonna hear this tone, but look where it gets in the end. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So that's where we're headed. But let's go back to the beginning of Stephen's message in verses two, the second half of verse two up to verse eight. After Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me, he continues, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. The God of glory, Stephen says. This is kind of a unique reference to God. It's mentioned only one other place. I believe the other reference is in Psalm 26, to call God the God of glory. But I think the point that 
Stephen is making is, of course, the uniqueness of this God who came to Abraham and the fact that God is the one who initiates this relationship. But Abraham responds. God initiates, and Abraham responds. Go out from your land and and from the land of your kindred and go into a land that I will show you. When you're reading through Genesis, which is actually the section of text we're covering today is the overview that he does of all of the first book of your Bible, Genesis, as he talks about Abraham and Joseph. But what we see in this section is um, an important reference to the land. So I don't know if you're like me, but I have a map for you just so that you kind of have your bearings there in the Middle East. Over to the right side of the screen is that's, that's Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where uh, Abraham and his family were from. And then toward the peak of this little red uh, early travelings of uh, Abraham map that you have, up there is Haran. That's where he and his family stopped until his father died. And that's where we pick up here in verse 4. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. This land of the Israelites is extremely important in the storyline of the early part of the Old Testament. This is the promised land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all promised the same thing, that there would be a land for their people. And so it is super important to them. Yet, Abraham himself, to him, God gave no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give, him as a, give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. One thing we should note as it's relevant to this overall thing that I, I told you about where Stephen's heading Note that Abraham worshiped and obeyed God before he was in the land of promise. Is God a God who's only tied to the land of promise? No. Yes, God does what he promises, but the inheritance of Abraham was actually this promise. Even while Abraham was only only a sojourner. And as we said, the land is extremely significant, but for Abraham, it is yet future. So what is emphasized is the promise and the response. In fact, how will Abraham realize this promise for his descendants to be as numerous as the sand of the sea, or sand of the seashore, or as many as the stars in heaven when Abraham doesn't have a child yet in his old age? Hang on to that thought because first there's another prediction. Verses 6 and 7, and God spoke to this effect. Here's another prediction, that his offspring would become sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come up out and worship me in this place. It was God's plan that he predicted even beforehand 
that it was in the land, in fact, in the land of Egypt, where God begins fulfilling the promise of Jacob's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's descendants becoming huge in number. It happens in this land in which they sojourn. And then God will do what he promises, which is to judge this nation and to bring out his people. And verse 8, and he gave, God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So much information that the audience is supposed to know that's skipped over, right? That Abraham and Sarah have no children. Talk about dysfunctional families. Just read Genesis. And so then there's a, a, a child born to Hagar, who is Ishmael, but that's not the son of the promise. No, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, in their old age, will have a child, and they will call his name Isaac. And through him, God will fulfill his promises. And to them, to Abraham, as a, as a sign of this covenant and a sign of Abraham keeping covenant with God would be this covenant of circumcision, that all the males presently in his household and born to his household and all those of his offspring should be circumcised in order to demonstrate that they are set apart and keeping this covenant with God. And here in these verses, the patriarchs is a reference to all the sons of Jacob. I don't know about you, but when I hear Stephen's speech, I'm used to thinking of the patriarchs as being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here he refers to the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, as the patriarchs. So just to review what we've been saying in this section, verses 1 through 8, the key figure that Stephen points out is Abraham. The key feature is God's promise and prediction, and the focus is God graciously initiating a special relationship and covenant with Abraham and his descendants. Now, as we're flowing through this long chapter, I don't know if this is the best way. It's certainly not the only way to draw your attention to what, what Stephen is doing, but this was the best way that I could think of to, to help you capture these sections as we move on. And so here in the first section, the figure is Abraham, although this, the primary subject most of the time in this first section uniquely here is God. But the key feature is God's promise and God's prediction, and the focus is God graciously initiating a special relationship and a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. There's a theological big picture in here for us that God is making a people for his own possession whom he would use to carry forward his plan. And now Stephen continues the historical progression with the patriarchs. In verses 9 and 10, he says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Familiar with these occurrences recorded in Genesis, we know that Stephen is really summarizing here again. 
But it's at this point where Joseph's brothers were jealous and sold him into slavery. At this point, we begin to get the first subtle hint of the theme of rejecting God's messengers. Joseph had undoubtedly been youthfully unwise to boldly declare his dreams. Dreams that God had given him, yes, but they were dreams about him being elevated over the rest of his family. He's even scolded by his father. But his brothers behaved wickedly indeed in their jealousy. But God was with him. God was with him. That's the bottom line. God's providential care and control in spite of the wickedness of men. God would keep his promises to Abraham. The very thing that got Joseph into trouble, dreams, is the very thing that God uses to get him out of his afflictions and find him favor with Pharaoh. God allows Joseph to interpret dreams. Do you remember the dreams? Dreams that concern the seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And both this and Joseph's wisdom land him as second in command over all of Egypt. And Stephen continues, now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers, that is the Israelites, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. This is the first place in here. We have to, if you're just reading through uh, Stephen's speech and not comparing to the passages in the Old Testament, you might not notice that there actually are a couple of places that are conflicting. And these are the kinds of things which we as people who study God's word and believe that God's word is the infallible, inerrant word of God, not a jot or tittle is out of place. And so the Old Testament says that there were 70 persons. Stephen says that there were 75 persons. In fact, following a quotation from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which, which I mentioned to you, Stephen would likely have men studying and teaching from because he is a Hellenist, a Greek-speaking Jew. And now as we deal with these kind of discrepancies, this one's easier. There are some harder ones in here. This one's kind of easier because the, where the Old Testament mentions 70, well, that's, that it's, uh, one probable explanation is 70 is all the descendants of Jacob, not including Joseph and his descendants. Whereas if you include Joseph's family, it would equal 75. That's an easy explanation, but again, I promise you there are some harder ones <laughs> to deal with still. And so we either have to think of it in two ways, one, in one of two ways. Either Luke records Stephen's speech exactly as it was given, even if there are minor errors as Stephen speaks under pressure. However, that's not my preferred understanding of this because we've heard repeatedly that Stephen is speaking in the Spirit. And so I think our, our better understanding of these things is to admit where there are difficulties, but to assume that Stephen is giving us further understanding 
um, than, than what we already have as commentary on the Old Testament. Now, again, about these verses, everything Stephen summarizes as a result of the famine was by God's favor to Joseph, that the sons of Israel and their children with them were rescued from the famine and became established for four centuries in Egypt, setting up another feature of God's prediction. And so here's another map courtesy of Holman Bible Atlas for you to see. This is that journey of Joseph to the land of Egypt and also then the migration of his family eventually down to this land of Egypt where they lived for more than 400 years before God brought them out. Acts chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, and Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. They, in verse 15, refers to Joseph and his brothers, Joshua 24, 32. Joseph and his brothers were entombed in Shechem. Because we know that in Genesis, Joseph had already buried his father Jacob in Abraham's tomb at Machpelah, Genesis 50, verse 13. But as I promised, there is an issue with Stephen saying Abraham bought the tomb in Shechem because our only other record says in Joshua 24, 32 that it was Jacob who bought it from the sons of Hamor. And Stephen says, Abraham. Now, it's possible that uh, Stephen is telescoping in the sense of he just refers to Abraham as being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the descendants of Abraham. But here's another possible explanation. Again, these explanations aren't perfect, but we do need to offer reasonable solutions. And so even though Abraham, even though our Joshua 24, 32 says that Jacob bought this tomb, Abraham had earlier built an altar at Shechem and probably purchased the land on which he built it. Abraham didn't settle there, and then the land may have reverted back to the people of Hamor. Jacob then possibly repurchased it from Shechem. This isn't unheard of because there was an earlier time where Isaac repurchased the well at Beersheba that Abraham had originally bought. So that's a possible explanation, not perfect, but plausible. Now, as we summarize this section, as we did with the previous one, the key figure is Joseph. The key feature is God's providential care for his people. And the focus is God continuing to fulfill his prediction and his promise. In verse 15, in fact, it will continue. I mean, verse 17, in fact, it will continue by saying, but as the time of the promise drew near, the promise to, to not only bring them out, but to make them this great nation and to bring them to the land that God had promised and so on and so forth. So the predictions and the promises are being fulfilled as God providentially cares for his people. And he used Joseph to do that. 
You know, since our emphasis this morning has been on these models, God's pivotal men for pivotal moments, I thought I'd take a moment in our concluding application to just think about using models wisely without unhealthy comparison. We have the model of Stephen, who seems so amazing. I was thinking to myself this morning, even in remembering the the goodness of God and that he is strong in our weakness, as Paul promises, I thought to myself, but I'm not Stephen. And Abraham, what faith is this that God says, I'll take you to a land, and he hasn't seen it, he doesn't know what it is, but the true God told me to go, and I will go. And Joseph, who is nearly one of the least flawed men that we know of, only he was a little unwise as a young guy, as we mentioned, (laughs) And Moses, who's pretty flawed, but mightily used by God. Flawed men, faithful God, but pivotal individuals for pivotal moments. And not just men, consider Ruth pivotal to God's purposes in the line of David in the line of Jesus. And Esther, what is the actual quotation from that book that we remember? For such a time as this. And Deborah, a brave and courageous judge when the men were not. And Hannah, who pled to God for a child and then devoted that child to God. And Mary, who became the mother of Jesus, pivotal men and women for pivotal moments. Not perfect people, but people to whom God had given faith. Faith and obedience. That's it. You don't know how God is going to use you. You don't know how wide, how big the impact. You just know that your God has given you saving faith. And you fear him and you trust him and you love him and you obey him. None of these people were perfect except Jesus. (laughs) God chooses people by his grace, and he uses people, not because they are perfect, but because they're people of faith and obedience. Will we be people of faith in a faithful God, the God of glory, and the God of grace? We must not wither under the self-imposed pressure of comparing ourselves to faith models, but we must follow their example of directing our gaze upward in trust and love toward the light of God's glory and grace, and follow their example of stretching our roots toward the streams of truth 
and refreshment found in the Word of God, where we find the source of our life, even Christ himself. Abiding in him, we allow our Lord to bear fruit in us by the work of his Holy Spirit. We let him determine in what way he wants to use us and how broad or influential our ministry. We are in his care, and he knows how to tend his garden. What rest and joy is there to be found in belonging to God and letting him have his way? Let's pray. God, you are faithful and true. You have been so merciful to reveal yourself to us, not only in knowledge, but in a way that is saving and sanctifying. You have changed us and given us faith. God, you know our frailty. You know how easily we become self-focused. God, give us sight each day more and more of how amazing and grand, magnificent, matchless you are. Give us comfort and courage in your perfect plan that you fulfill your promises. All of your predictions are guaranteed because you are God. Not least of which is that you promise to finish what you have started in us and through your people. And we say, amen, yes, Lord, to these things, in the name of Jesus. Amen.